0: So as we discussed the second half, it's called When We War, WWW, When We War. The interesting thing that you've got to consider about war is that there is a cost to war. And so that's why no one in their right mind would promote it, want it, glee in it. But it's the necessity of a war when you come up against evil. Because war is by force. You've got to think about war. War is taking force over a situation. So, as we begin this second part, when we war, I want you to think about this thing of what happens when you're weak in war. When you don't go as far as you should go. This happens when you don't take it to the point that you should. It would be a part of starting a war and compromising in it and that's what Jesus addressed when he said about a war you've got to make sure that you're going to win it so when we war we're going to talk about what happens when we don't war King Saul conquers the Amalekites you would think oh wow he conquered that horrible nation the Amalekites and Saul captures the king named Agag right there should be yay he did something he actually defeated one of the huge enemies of Israel that had been left undone by Joshua so you remember the story it's in 1 Samuel 15:2 however there was one little piece of the pie one little thing that Saul was supposed to do he conquers the amalekites he captures their king but this is the moment that he loses everything he has as being the king The kingdom is stripped from Saul. What did he do that got him in so much trouble? He didn't kill the king. He captured the king but he didn't kill the king. So you can see that you can do a partial part of what you're asked to do and it only makes matters worse. It gets you in a lot of trouble. So he was supposed to kill Agag but he didn't do it. He let him live. And Saul incurred the Lord's displeasure, and for that he displeased the Lord. And guess what? The prophet Samuel, he steps in, and the throne was removed from Saul's family. Like, Jonathan lost out of this. Everybody lost because Saul was unwilling to finish the battle. So he captured them. He conquered the entire army, he captured the king, but he does not do the rest that God asked him to do with it. So this shows you what happens when you don't go in and do the complete business like we were talking about in the last set of scriptures. And so the throne was removed. And you remember what Samuel did with Agag. So Samuel didn't just say, you should have done it. Samuel went in and what did he do? He did it. Like he didn't leave it undone. So sometimes you find something somebody didn't do and you're the prophetic voice for it. You've got to finish it yourself. So Samuel gets Saul's sword and he takes Agag and what does he do? He hacks him to pieces. Like it's a very graphic verse of what happens. I mean, it doesn't say he just ran him through with the sword or he killed him. It says he hacked him to pieces. So he chopped the guy up and you see this idea in scripture when it talks about like if you're a hypocrite you get chopped to pieces you're not killed just outright killed but it talks about hypocrisy gets you cut into pieces very strong verse here so we see the prophet as a warrior so in talking about when do we war you see even the prophetic office coming forth When the king's office failed or the government failed, the prophetic voice stepped to the plate and he was a warrior. And then you think about it of God was looking out for Mordecai and Esther with the enemy who rose up against them. And Haman was an Agat. So if you look at that, that's the name of the king. That's what they called him. And though almost a millennium had passed since the curse and hundreds of years had passed since the hacking of Agat to death, A Jewish prophet by the name of Samuel who hacked his royal ancestor to pieces made Haman still have a blood oath. Those blood oaths still go down the family lines. So I got tickled. Prophets can still be making you mad 500 years later. But Samuel was obedient to what the Lord had said. So I want you to write down this phrase called partial obedience or selective obedience. Are you giving God's word selective obedience or partial obedience? Because the outcome turns around and bites you. Not only did Saul lose the throne and the presence of the Lord withdrew from him, when he was ordered to kill the Amalekites, guess what happened? It was an Amalekite sword in him at the end of his life. The very thing you don't go back and get will come back on you. Our disobedience will come back to get us. The downside, stuff like this happens, and it is completely contrary to what God wanted. In 1 Chronicles 10, 13, it puts us this way. Saul spared the Amalekite king, and then you think about it, of when he spared him, then that sword is what entered him. What kind of compromise are you making that that's the sword that will come back after you? And that's what happens with war if you don't go all the way through with it. If you don't complete the job. If you think of places that we haven't completed. my Nee said if you know authority and you really understand the concept of authority, then even a slight disobedience will make you feel like you're rebellious. But notice this. But those who have not seen authority and they don't understand authority and they don't know authority, have no idea how really rebellious they are. And that's true. You have a high conscience to disobedience if you really understand authority. But if you don't understand it, you are completely rebellious and you don't know it. And that's what happened here. So, partial victories. How far you've come and how far you must go. And I want you to think about this now as in your entire life. Look at your whole life and see how much you have done partial victories. The last example I just gave you is a one time incident in your life where you didn't do everything you were supposed to do. But now I'm about to look at your life as a whole. Your life will be made up of X amount of decades. And so you have to see how far you've come and how far you've got to go. What have you partially done that God has commanded you to do? This done me. When I heard this concept, I was shocked. We're going to look in the life of Joshua. and In Joshua 1, verse 4, Moses died. And Joshua had to step up to the plate. And it's interesting about Joshua and his calling. The Lord tells him, you know, like I've been with Moses, I will be with you. He has a very clear calling and he tells him i have given you the land and he gives him the dimensions of the land he tells him how big the piece of property would be and it's much bigger than anything you would think it's very interesting the jews study these concepts of how big israel supposed to be and and if you ever hear him refer to the greater israel they're referring to these verses because everybody gets mad about little things called the west bank or different places like that and the Jews have in their mind what God actually told them belonged to them Joshua was given this amount and whatever you're given you have to steward and so he's given it and he said no one could stand before you so I want you to fast forward to the end of Joshua's life this is him starting out he's young he's fresh he's given the land God tells him no one can stand before you and in Joshua 11:18, 18, it's a accountability God does with Joshua. What's good about this, this wasn't done at Judgment Day where we weren't privy to the information. This actually happens so that the writer can tell you what took place. This wasn't later in heaven. It'd be interesting what happened in heaven. But this is a time when God was dealing with Joshua. I would tell you, look at how God dealt with Joshua and you'll get an idea of how he'll deal with you. So, in 11 verse 18, it says, Joshua waged war a long time. Does that feel like your life? Yeah. All you peace-loving people verse 18 i mean you just can't get any better than that joshua waged war a long time yes from joshua chapter one to joshua eleven it is battle after battle after battle after battle and joshua never has a let up it's the fine print of your contract with god your calling has some things that aren't full disclosure but your task is to go into a land And you're supposed to occupy the land. Oh, by the way, there's a few giants. There's a few problems. So, this is an emotional sentence. Joshua had waged war a long time. It doesn't say Joshua waged war X amount of years. It tells you it was a long time. That's a very emotional sentence. So it feels like all you've done all your life is fight. You people who love conflict so much. All you've done is fight. When one attack stops, another will start. In this issue, Joshua is going in and playing the offense with these attacks. So you have to love it when in Joshua 11 21 through 22, it tells all that Joshua had done and then. So it gives you a list of everything that he had done. And there was one problem there were some remaining Anakins. You know what Anakins are? There are huge problems in your life. They're giants. And so it tells you here, there's a few remaining Anakins. Like you didn't get them all killed. You've left some giants. And giants cause problems. But I want you to know that the Bible lets you know specific problems. And it will mean something to you today when you hear this. So in 21 through 22, it lists all you've done. That's what your life will be like. And you got this done, and you got this done, and you did this, and it's obedience, 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 obedience. Chapter 12, verse 24, it gives you, And Joshua was victorious over 31 kings in all. Now, how do we know that he was victorious over 31 kings? Like, he defeated 31 nations, like little, you know, little many nations. Because probably their heads were hanging on his wall. He probably had a souvenir. What did he have in his office? I mean, you have to ask yourself, what is it that it shows that Joshua was victorious over 31 kings in all? Now, you imagine God showing up on the scene and God's admiring. Joshua, look at all you've done for me. Look how obedient you are. I just want to thank you for all those battles you fought and how you went into conflict when no one else would. Okay let me let you know what your father thinks like let me let you know what it sounds like coming from God Joshua 13 1 through 5 first of all God notices Joshua's age (laughs) that's funny isn't it funny to think God notices your age he's looking at when he called you and he notices what decades you are in, what age you are. He says, Joshua, you're very old. <laughs> and this is a Jewish father speaking to you. You're very old. But he's not finished there. There are still many cities left to be captured. And he names them. This is what judgment will be like what you didn't get done. You're counting your 31 heads. You're telling yourself I've waged war a long time. You're saying no one would go through what I've been through. And God admits you're old, but the reason he's telling you you're old is because he's saying there's so much left to be done that you didn't get done. Think about your assignment. I don't think encouragement the way that the American church does encouragement is how God does it. I haven't seen it. (laughs) Nobody's laughing. (laughs) Let's hear God's word. Very much of the land remains to be possessed. One old timer, you can tell by the way he words this in his commentary. Much of your religion is unattained, unoccupied, and, listen to this word, unenjoyed that's what happens when you don't get it all done unattained unoccupied unenjoyed you know my grandma you know she was telling me i don't think you should go to this country i was preaching crusades in india i just think it's wrong i think this guy's controlling you i think that da, 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 da. and i said meanwhile haven't you ever in your life wanted to go to a foreign country and spread the gospel. Hadn't that ever been a desire of yours to ever do anything like that? And she says, no, and I'm too old for God to do anything about it. I went down after her passport. I wasn't letting her go to judgment with that honor. Can you imagine? No, and I'm too old for God to do anything about it. I don't think that's the correct attitude to talk to him at that moment. It's so unusual, the detail here. 31, the number, the long, the way that God put it, a few joints are left. Are you gonna tell God I'm too old for you to do anything about it? Punch the person next to you in case they're sleeping. I'm too old for God to do anything about it. Now, what's interesting about this, of the land, very much of the land remains to be possessed. Did you know, that's why I have a hard time thinking you got your list done when you go to heaven. Because God looks at it in terms of how much of the land is possessed. You're supposed to be possessing the land for his kingdom. You're supposed to be pulling down the inheritance. You're supposed to be bringing godliness into the earth. Some people have not even started. They don't have one king on their wall. They don't have one place they've turned around for the sake of God. Not one little area. They can say, I did that one area. Some people are banking on going to heaven. I did that one. Josh did it his entire career. And these are God's words to him. I was appalled at partial victories. But now let's look at God's perspective, consequences through the year. You know, God had noticed his age. You're very old. He wasn't saying you're very old, so I think you should retire. (laughs) He wasn't saying you're very old, so therefore I appreciate all you've done for me. He's saying you're very old, and there's still much more to be done. I want you to notice what happens when you don't do all God tells you to. Let's see Gaza in Scripture. Move forward into Judges 16.1. Gaza. Samson got a harlot here. Joshua left others unprotected. He gave his descendants a smaller inheritance than what God wanted them to have. Do you realize when you don't finish everything God tells you to do, that you're giving your descendants a smaller heritage than what God intended? When you don't have that fight in you to have a warlike mentality, you go, But I don't like war. Well, you don't even get the 31 like Joshua. When you don't have a warrior spirit inside of you, you're cutting your kids' inheritance and you're causing open doors for people that are left unprotected. And if this doesn't mean anything to you today, that Gaza is the place they're firing the missiles into. Are you realizing this is not reading like just the Bible? This is reading like a newspaper? When you see Judges sixteen one, that Gaza was still left with people in it, still causing problems, still causing Samson problems, but it is still decades, decades, centuries, centuries, millennial millennium, millennium later, and here we are, and who's firing rockets? Gaza perpetual problems. Why do we war? I could just say Gaza and that's enough. Gaza was in the territory that Joshua was supposed to get and he didn't do it. It leaves it open for then on. Do you see why God was looking at it? He was looking at the people that were killed today and saying Joshua, if you could just have a few more battles in you. (laughs) If you could just keep moving. If you could just keep pushing for the kingdom of God. Gath. 1 Samuel 17, 4. Guess where Goliath was from? Gath. The land of the giants. See, right now God is naming to Joshua. These are the ones that you should have possessed. Joshua 13, 1-5. You should have done Gaza. You should have done Gath. Gath is going to cause David. And Joshua's, who's David? <laughs> He's going to cause him many problems. The giant, the Philistines that are there are from Gath. This is where the ark is stolen and taken. Gath, Gath, Gath. Ashdod, he names. You'll find that in 1 Samuel 4, 11 in 5, 1 through 8. What happened in Ashdod? Oh, this is where Eli, the prophet's two sons, were killed. It's where Israel got defeated. It's where the ark was captured. It's where the temple of Dagon is. Oh, they've raised a temple. Dagon. Ashkelon. Judges 14, 19. This is where Samson goes in and kills 30 men. They're a serious threat. Amos, the tradition, guess what Ashkelon also is? The birthplace of Herod the Great. Ekron, 1 Samuel 1752. After David killed Goliath, he chased the Philistines to the very gates of Ekron. These are unconquered territories. It's where they captured the Ark and remember they all got hemorrhoids. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ekron. 2 Kings 1-2, Ahazah, king of Ahab, called on the god of Ekron when he got sick. Ahazah called on this god. Guess what the god's name was that he called on when he got sick. You want to hear the name? Maybe you'll notice it in Ekron. The name of the god that he called on when he got sick was Beelzebub the Lord of the Flies. What you refuse to confront comes back to get you. You've got much land to possess. I have no idea what God will say to a person that lives and dies and does not do any warrior, any conflict. I don't know what he'll say to you. If you're not doing anything hard, if you're not pushing the gates of your enemies, if you're not possessing the gates of your enemies, I don't know what he'll say. This is a guy that lived and died it. And it wasn't enough. And look at the calamity from someone who did 31 kingdoms. Those towns that you thought were insignificant, those that were too fortified for you, it's what's given the Jews trouble today. An incomplete conquest. Gosh, is that how God sees our life? Incomplete. Have you ever gotten an eye on your paper? Maybe you have a semester incomplete. We had to work into the next semester. No rewards yet. God saw it as unfinished business. He lost that complete victory vision. I'm asking you with war. You have to receive a complete vision. Complete victory vision. Do not let it be your voice who pulls someone off and go, ah, don't kill AGAG. Oh, that's hideous. Yes, whose voice that is. Oh, you're honey, you're tired. Quit pushing it so hard. You need a little rest. Let me just prophesy that to you right now. That hadn't been the voice of prophecy that prophesies to me. (laughs) All the Lord looks at is what I don't get done every day. And there's another person that looks at that part too. Hmm. (laughs) Take your victory to the finish line. There's not excuses. I mean, the old age clause didn't work. There's nothing but... What concerns me is, at your age, I'm talking to you. And if you haven't started your calling, I would suggest you do so. PVs. I've been waiting for years to say this to this group. PVs. Those things that we've left undone, omitted. Listen to these words. Touched once. Unconquered. That God's told us to do. Punch your neighbor next to you. Make sure they're getting this down. Because this is such a blessing to be able to get a piece of judgment day ahead of time. A look at how God's gonna look at it. You know, basically, this is like Vietnam you fight, but you don't fight to win. Why put your people in war? if you're not going to let them win that war. That was the complaint of every pilot from Vietnam. Why did you let my buddy die, and not let me win this war? Let me tell you, that is the voice that is to be spoken. When you start a war, you cannot stop until it is complete. What God would have liked out of Joshua is that he had taken his life and taken those cities that were in that territory, divided it up into territories, and said, by this date I will have these conquered. By this date I will have these conquered. And by the end of my life I will have everyone out of there. Can you imagine what Israel would be like today if they had the entire territory to work with? And by a certain date he had gotten everything done You can't stop till that's done. Partial victories make it worse than a complete loss at times. I don't know why, but a partial victory can just get them mad like hornets. What did it accomplish? So, on that note of partial victories and what God requires and selective obedience, I want you to think about the terms of conscientious objectors. Conscientious objectors. People that say, it's just not in my heart to fight. John was sending me texts today of people like that. Well, let's just not stir up trouble. Let's just agree with everything the world's saying. Those that refuse to go into battle and fight for their own country, these are people, they're not a warrior. They're warriorless in their heart they're witless. <laughs> they're womanlike. <laughs> they're not a warrior. Moses faced the same situation when he stood at the border of Canaan in Numbers 32. He had people that told him, "We don't want to fight. We are conscientious objectors." I want you to look at a biblical stance on this. Because we are teaching a different gospel then how this is related it's the two tribes reuben and gad wanted to settle on the other side of the jordan and not enter the land they wanted to become farmers and they wanted to raise their families they wanted to not go in They wanted to live near the fertile river. And since they weren't going into the promised land, they didn't feel it was necessary to fight with the other tribes. Like, we'll settle here. Y'all go in and fight for what y'all want. But this is great land right here. We'll take this as an inheritance. I don't care what God has or what He's promised. This is good enough for me. Wouldn't you say that, that the body of Christ, that the church has done this? We have so said these words... This is good enough for me. I don't know what God has for me. I don't know what the whole word salvation means. I don't know what he's promised, but this is good enough. I'll just raise a family. I'll just have a good job. I just want to live in peace. Witless, warriorless, womanlike. like this is the exact mentality. It has not changed. We think, oh, conscientious objectors are just today. No. They go clear back to this time. This is good enough. It's just us four no more. You know, you know my ministry is my family. That's who God's called me to. It's my children. You know, right here is my greatest ministry. Is it? i don't see that model i see you in trouble if you fell with them but i don't see that being your whole ministry i see this as being this person here let's just stop right here where where i can live a comfortable life and not get involved in the fight let them do it they're the ones starting the trouble they're those kind of people we're happy here so moses addressed the tribes of reuben and gad and warned them of four consequences that would happen for refusing to defend their country. So this gives you what to say to those who refuse to defend their country. Number one. Numbers 32, 6 through 7. If you do such a thing, this will cause discouragement for those of us who go into battle. Weak, lazy Christians make it hard on everyone else. Remember, many hands make light loads. You sit there and say, that person fights all the time. They're fighting all the time because you're not fighting any of the time. I always think this is odd. I just don't bear witness with that person. They're too much into, you know, the dark side deliverance. They do deliverance all the time. I just know in my spirit that's wrong. And the person who says it doesn't do any deliverances. So I want to say that person wouldn't be doing them all the time if you were doing them some of the time. Yes, they're doing too many. Yes, it's dark. Yes, when you hear all the perverted sin every single day, it makes you a little crazy. (laughs) But if everybody would do a little, then everybody would be more balanced. But that causes people to fight all the time. It's a discouragement. Passivism. Huh. What is that passivism? Passivism towards war causes the troops... To get discouraged you not only have to fight but you have to have a fighters mentality first thing second concept when you do it you're listening to man rather than to god and it will discourage the children visual did not learn passivism from god they learned it from their fathers Your weakness in you, you learned from your family. They're teaching you to be weak. Numbers 32, 8-9. through nine. This is part of it. Just as the Israelites received the evil report from the ten spies and became discouraged, and as a result did not want to fight, their descendants were walking in the same pacifism. Those descendants that walked in and said, we can't do it, it's too many giants, it's too difficult, we won't do it, God said, Let them all die and I'll go with the new ones. And guess what the new ones said? I don't want to fight. You're listening to man. Number three, God becomes angry with those who refuse to fight with their brothers and defend their nation. Verse 10. You get God mad, riled up, angry. He's trying to get you to receive your entire inheritance. People want the inheritance, they just want you to do the fighting for it, for them. You know, all of us, people that are preaching the ethical gospel, the apologetic one, what is the context of the verse? Your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. Yeah, my grandmother used to say that. Your sin will find you out. Same one that told me I'm too old for God to do anything about it. Verse 23. The choice to not fight is called sin. I have never heard anyone say, I repent for not wanting to fight. That sounds so unchristian. I repent. I sin by not wanting to fight. Watch this. But if you will not do so, go into battle. Behold, you have sinned against the Lord. And be sure your sin will find you out. There's the verse. Your sin will find you out. This is what happens when you don't fight. And even if you're Joshua who's a warrior and fighting many battles, it tells you whatever you don't get done will find you out. Conscientious objectors. I can read the internet and I don't find this mentality. The Patriots They're just looking for someone to shoot. The Christians, they're telling you this isn't Jesus' way. But I want you to realize that Jesus leads armies. And let's see if this is right. Historically, many people believe that Jesus is that captain of the armies of the living God. They feel like in the Old Testament, when it said the captain, the host of the armies of the living God, they feel like that that was... A visitation from Jesus, and I'll tell you why. In Joshua, he has an appearance, and it's a very odd thing that this man, angel, God—you know—it's—it's it's something supernatural is coming up to Joshua, and Joshua is looking at him, going, "Friend or foe? <laughs> identify yourself. Are you on my side?" And in a very stern voice and with a drawn-out sword, he says, "Are you on my side?" not whether I'm on your side and the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground and Joshua did so we are clued into the fact that the one identified as the captain of the host of the armies of the living God is not an angel and let me tell you why Joshua falls down and worships it he's not rebuked Angels don't let you worship them. Good ones don't. Every angel. No, stand up. I'm an angel. Don't worship me. Remember in Revelation? I mean, constantly they were telling John the Revelator, quit falling down trying to worship me. Some people said, I'm a saint just like you are. Don't worship me. This captain of the host of the armies of the living God said, take off your shoes, Joshua, it's holy. And Joshua fell down and worshiped. And the angel led him. Guess who this might have been. It's hard not to think that this is who walked in there. Notably the commander does not give a yes answer when Joshua asks if he's for the Israelites. Even though the Israelites were fulfilling the will of God in the invasion of Canaan. Neither does the commander claim to be on the side of the Canaanites. This teaches us a vital truth. Joshua was on his side. It wasn't that he was on Joshua's side. An angel? Sometimes they fight with you. This one? You can't even say he's the man. I don't even look like he's the angel. It looks like he's the boss. He's God. So Jesus leads armies. And you can make a case, even though the the Jewish people had a a veiling and God hadn't revealed it yet. I mean, it's God not revealing it. That you see through the history that this captain, the host, was making appearances. All through the Testament as a warrior. And in Psalm 1834 and Psalm 144.1 it says, He will teach your hands to make war. Has this ceased? Sometimes you've got to look at your hands and say, these are made to make war. Win peace, win war. So I'm asking, has this technically ceased in this time? So the idea of disarming nations, righteous nations, and disarming individual, in my judgment, is of the wrong spirit. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. It's preparing people to be defeated by the enemy. It's contrary to the word of God. And there are people that are trying to disarm nations that are righteous and disarm individuals. If a man is disarming you, I would say don't vote for him. I want you to notice, and this is a unique switch. in Joel, it says people will beat their plowshares into swords, Joel 3.10. They will take their farming equipment and beat it into a sword. But notice this. People will beat their swords into plowshares, and swords will be beat into pruning hooks. Neither shall they learn war. Different verse, Isaiah 2, 4. Guess where we are when that's said? Millennial kingdom. It's when the devil's locked up. So if I was going to tell you what the dispensation is, I would say up until the millennial kingdom, you beat your farming equipment into swords. But in the millennial kingdom, you get to beat your swords into farming equipment. The defense isn't the same. Like, you don't have to do it like that. Very unique switch in prophetic scripture. The day of the Lord in Joel... They should make a song about this. Blow your trumpet in Zion, Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is a spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people like there has never been before. Nor will there ever be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. Nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As the rumbling of the chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them people are in anguish. All their faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way, they do not swerve from their path. They do not jostle one another, each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earthquakes before them... The heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And then in Acts they say, this is the prophecy of the end times. Hmm. What dispensation are we living in? The right to bear arms. In Luke 22, verse 36, they're given weapons for their defense and travels. In Luke 11:21, there's weapons in their homes to defend themselves against thieves. It is legal to have weapons in our home from the American Bill of Rights. Teaching our children to defend themselves against troublemakers is acceptable to the Lord. These are positions that Americans have taken. They've said, maybe this is how you divide it out. But when we're attacked for our stand for Jesus Christ, we should make no retaliation. Jesus did not take up arms against his own crucifixion. Was it a one-time thing? Jesus has never lost a battle. Jesus did not try to open an earthly kingdom at the time he came, 2,000 years ago. His vengeance was not so much aimed at the enemies of Israel, but it was aimed at the enemies of man. What Jesus came down here to fight was unforgiveness, anger, revenge, temptation, offenses, doubt, unbelief. He fought the enemies of our soul, and now we live in a time when it nears that a white horse which carries Jesus Christ. This is a very different image than him riding on a donkey as he leads angels and saints in a dramatic battle between good and evil. After he returns to the earth, in Revelation nineteen, eleven through twenty one, listen to these words. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called faithful. Truth. With justice he judges and wages war. Hmm He looks different. We're seeing the captain It continues in verses 12 through 16. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses. On his robe and on his thigh he had the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. You know, we think about the great supper of God and everybody gets hungry. This is quite a a supper we are (laughs) being told about here. (laughs) Sometimes I think people go, oh good, the supper of our God. The vision of a holy angel inviting vultures to eat the dead bodies of those who fought for evil is a graphic snapshot of the destruction that awaits. Can you imagine an angel inviting the vultures to come to eat the dead? And not just the dead. Look at this. The kings and the generals and the mighty and the horses and the riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small, come to this supper. You vultures, come. I think it's hilarious. This isn't just told in normal terms, but it's told like there's a vulture cleanup crew. Like the angels barred the birds. Like we don't want this nasty field laid on the earth. You know, in the Old Testament, you weren't supposed to touch any of that. So that's what the the garbage disposal men are for. Those things with the funny heads and necks. The vultures. Man, people are just not enjoying these verses. I'm telling you, people in the pulpit should do a better job preaching what we've got going on. 19-21, through 21, the epic battle occurs between Jesus and His holy forces. And they're all riding white horses. And the Antichrist and His evil forces culminating in the destruction of evil and victory for good. In the end, in the end, in the end, God wins. So the Millennial Kingdom, when Jesus is reigning, we will be able to take the locks off our door and walk the streets at night in safety. We will be able to take our swords, our guns, melt them into farm equipment. But it can't happen till evil is locked up and gone. It is fantasy to do it beforehand. It is sin. Your sins will find you out. It's a warning to do peace before the millennial kingdom is the voice of the Antichrist. You must pay attention to who is speaking to you and not get caught up in a false religion and a false voice that disarms you because it will come back whatever conflict you do not succeed in will come back on you and like Saul spared the guy. that's the sword that you die by. The partial victories are the ones that you leave where you create a smaller inheritance than what God intended. And at this point, believe me, your sins will find you out. The enemy's looking for those open doors. Amen.